guardian.co.uk. Hello, I'm Norton Juster, and you're listening to the Guardian Children's Books Podcast. Oh, I'm going to read you a selection from the Phantom Tollbooth, and it's one that uh, happens throughout the book where ordinary ideas and things that you think you understand are turned around backwards. And this is a section where Milo and his friends are in uh, in Digitopolis, the, the land of numbers, and they've just arrived very hungry. Perhaps you'd care for something to eat, said the mathematician, offering each of them a heaping bowlful. Yes, sir, said Milo, who was beside himself with hunger. Thank you, added Tuck. The humbug made no reply, for he was already too busy eating, and in a moment the three of them had finished absolutely everything they'd been given. Please have another portion, said the mathematician, filling their bowls once more, and as quickly as they'd finished the first one, The second was emptied, too. Don't stop now, he insisted, serving them again and again and again and again. How very strange, thought Milo as he finished his seventh helping. Each one I eat makes me a little hungrier than the one before. Do have some more, suggested the mathematician, and they continued to eat just as fast as he filled the plates. After Milo had eaten nine portions, Tock eleven, and the humbug without once stopping to look up, twenty-three, the mathematician blew his whistle, and immediately the pot was removed, and all the miners went back to work. Ugh, gasped the bug, suddenly realizing that he was 23 times hungrier than when he started. I think I'm starving. Me too, complained Milo, whose stomach felt as empty as he could remember, and I ate so much. Yes, it was delicious, wasn't it, agreed the pleased dodecahedron, wiping the gravy from several of his mouths. It's the specialty of the kingdom, subtraction stew. I have more of an appetite than when I began, said Tuck. Certainly, replied the mathematician. What did you expect? The more you eat, the hungrier you get. Everyone knows that. They do, said Milo doubtfully. Then how do you ever get enough? Enough, he said impatiently. Here in Digitopolis, we have our meals when we're full, and we eat until we're hungry. That way, when you don't have anything at all, you have more than enough. It's a very economical system. You must have been quite stuffed to have eaten so much. It's completely logical, explained the dodecahedron. The more you want, the less you get, and the less you get, the more you have. Simple arithmetic, that's all. Suppose you had something and added something to it. What would you have? More, said Milo quickly. Quite correct, he nodded. Now suppose you had something and added nothing to it. What would you have? The same, he answered again, without much conviction. Splendid, cried the dodecahedron. And suppose you had something and added less than nothing to it. What would you have then? Famine, roared the anguished humbug, who suddenly realized that's exactly what he'd been eating 23 bowls of. Thank you very much. That was delightful. And I think there's a lot for our... um current economist to to learn there. (laughs) Listening to your reading there, the book still sounds incredibly fresh and it's hard to believe that it's now over 50 years old. It's got a a timeless quality to it. I think it's very simple that a lot of things change in the world, but children don't change much because they confront, as young children, the same questions, the same 
things they don't understand, the same things terrify them or make them feel like they don't understand anything. You know, the vocabulary may change, the costumes may change, the hardware changes, but children remain very much the same. And they understand there are a lot of things that uh, they simply don't understand yet. And, and they understand something that I discovered quite early that terrified me, was that they don't understand grown-ups, and un grown-ups don't understand them. Have reactions to the book changed at all? You must I, get loads of letters I from, do, from children. I do, and I do a lot of signings, and it's very interesting to me. I remember one recently where I looked up, and there was three generations standing in front of me, the grandparents, the parents, and the kids, all holding their books out to be signed, because it seems to hang around. People like to read it at different stages. I'll get a letter sometimes from someone who's nine saying, I'll write and tell me the usual children's letter, I'm nine, this is what I like, this is the questions I have, so forth. And then about five years later, I'll get a second letter. Now they're about 14 and they're in high school, as we call it. And uh, they'll write a letter all about the book again. And it's almost as if they're talking about another book, because they're getting a whole lot of things that they didn't understand before. And I have, I've had a number of them where I'll get a third or an even a fourth letter when they're in college or even out. I remember I got one letter, obviously, from a little girl in, in the United States who was Hispanic. And she wanted to know why all the princesses in the books that she reads, including the Phantom Tollbooth, had blonde and blue-eyed princesses. And uh, I felt terrible about that because it was just it was what I had given to me when I was a child, and it just passed through without me thinking about it. And the book is all about learning, isn't it? But, but that, that makes it sound very serious yes, and I, very I, dull. I'm trying and... to avoid <laughs> it's, it's not a tract. I wasn't trying to, to uh, teach a lesson or anything. I was doing it because they were things that I, I got back to myself, not specific instances or episodes of my life, but the way I used to feel about things. And, and that whole business of not understanding adults and they, not me. I remember that one of the things my parents were endlessly saying to me when I, we would have an argument and I'd present my viewpoint and they would say very calmly, well, how can you be right and the rest of the world wrong? And it took me a number of years bef before I realized that that was true, that I was right and the rest of the world was wrong. <laughs> Do you think there's a problem, though, that kids can be too overloaded with images, for instance, with television and and Yeah, because that's, a, pa that's that... a passive relationship, mm. though, the television. Sometimes when I'm in a classroom, I'll do a little exercise with kids and say, okay, I'll start a story, and then we'll go around the room, and you'll all add a piece to it. And uh, it's great fun to do, and it's not my thing. I mean, a lot of people do it. But what you get back from them now is almost exactly what you can hear on television, all the stories, all the images, everything are, are from the, what they he, see on the television screen and tend to be very scary and, and sometimes uh, very upsetting. But when, you, when you're conjuring pictures yourself, I used to be a habituated radio listener when I was a kid, and there would be stories on, and all the, the images were ones that I had to manufacture in my own head, and that's very creative, it's very different. And I understand this, I don't know if this, if you still have this, but you had a very different way of looking at things as a child because of, very hard to say this, <laughs> synesthesia, synesthesia, which I did not know the name of until mm. I was an adult. I couldn't do arithmetic or mathematical problems or anything without assigning colors to numbers. I could not comprehend numbers without the colors. 
Now, I think people have, that's just one aspect of synesthesia, but people do it with sounds, with other kinds of things too, where they'll, they'll sort of meld two different ways of looking at something so they can create an understanding. And then that understanding is very much askew from the way most people understand things. So it leads you very naturally into, I don't know how you describe it, you can say it's a creative approach or approach that's just different. And so a lot of other things happen that don't normally happen to you. And uh, it was kind of a blessing in disguise, I think. It seems like in the, in the book you touch on this with the idea that words taste of things. Always had that thing where I like to turn things around, but to take something that looks like something, but how does it sound? And so that you assign to something a whole series of characteristics that you normally wouldn't think about. And so it's, you know, it, it's great fun. And I love words my father was a, uh, an addicted punster and wordplay person. There were thousands of them, but one that sticks in my mind, where I'd walk in the door and he'd look at me very seriously and say, Aha, I see you're coming early since lately. Used to be behind before, but now you're first at last. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he would see it and he'd, he'd get up, put his arm around me and say, You're a good kid and I'd like to see you get ahead. You need one. But when you come home every single day and someone is there throwing these things at you, as a kid, your first reaction is always, ugh, because you don't understand it or what to do with it. But after a while, slowly you do, and, and when some, one of these is thrown at you, you say, I understand that, and I can do that. And so there's a whole new world opens for you. But words are music. I mean, if I go into a classroom and say, okay, how many of you have ever said a word over and over again until it had no meaning? It was just sounds. Virtually every hand in the room will go up because every kid has done that. And so the idea of playing with language through the sounds, even this, the, the pace, the music, the rhythm of it, adds great ways to, to you to express things you know, in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I love doing that. And of course, it's a disease that is easily caught and you never get rid of it. So. What is the tastiest word? <laughs> and what does it taste of? Now, do you want me to reply to that as an adult or a child? <laughs> I remember I was once given a sheet with, from a class that said, um, what would your favorite meal be? And I remember as a child, the, the one meal, which was heaven, which was a summer meal, when you got hot dogs, corn on the cob, and watermelon. Mm. It's funny how, how words seem to suggest what they're about also. I know my granddaughter has uh, ADD and dyslexia, and we do, we do a lot of things together. We'll, we'll read together sometimes, tell stories, and we'll talk about words, and we'll make up words. And it's such an empowering thing for a kid to be able to do that, to suddenly realize that language is there for me, and it's not telling me what to do. It's making suggestions I can suggest back. You know? I think I've let you off the hook there with your tastiest word, <laughs> yes. but if any of our listeners would like to email in with their tastiest words, we would love to hear them. I would be happy to consume it. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you very much. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.